Wellington. After Waterloo, Wellington was the commander of the occupying army in France and the British ambassador to Paris. He opposed the splitting up of France among the Allies. It took three years for France to pay the financial and political fines imposed under the Treaty of Paris and to be accepted into the Congress of Europe. This done, the Allied forces withdrew and Wellington with them. It was only then, in 1819, that he re-entered government and continued his policy of maintaining the present order of British politics. The rest of the cabinet were Tories of the deepest dye, such as the Lord Chancellor, Eldon, Addington, now Viscount Sidmouth, once Prime Minister and now at the Home Office, and Earl Bathurst, Colonial Secretary, whom Lord Rosebery has described as one of those strange children of our political system who fill the most dazzling offices with the most complete obscurity. These men had begun their political life under the threat of world revolution. Their sole aim in politics was an unyielding defence of the system they had always known. Their minds were rigid and scarcely capable of grasping the changes pending in English society. They were the upholders of the landed interest in government, of the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland, and of Anglicanism at home. Castlereagh was a specialist in foreign and Wellington in military affairs. The others were plain Tory politicians, resolved to do as little as possible as well as they could. The dislocation caused by the end of the war and the novel problems posed by the advance of industry were beyond the power of these men to remedy or solve. They concentrated upon the one issue they understood, the defence of property. In a society which was rapidly becoming industrial, most of them represented the abiding landed interest. They were incapable of carrying out even moderate reforms because of their obsessive fears of bloody revolution. It was a misfortune for Britain in these years that the parliamentary opposition was at its weakest. A generation in the wilderness had demoralised the Whig party. The radicals who found their way into Parliament were too few to form an effective opposition. The violence of language used by the radicals frightened the Tories and Whigs alike. It stiffened the resistance of the upper middle classes, both industrial and landed, to all proposals for change. Churchill's point about the lack of opposition would have been applauded by Wellington. Wellington, although a Tory, was not beholden to the party. At this stage in British politics, it's apparent still that collective party responsibility is confined to military, foreign and sometimes economic affairs. But Wellington was not simply a run-of-the-mill politician turned soldier turned politician. Wellington, like many of his colleagues at the head of the governing classes, was an exceptional personality. Here is a man who does not charge into battle simply because he has the most cavalry. He watches, waits, plans, is cautious. This innate conservatism and his sheer grandness of personality are well shown in a letter he wrote to the Prime Minister, Lord Liverpool. It sets out very clearly his idea of how government ought to perform without what he calls factious opposition and states his determination that he would rejoin government as an individual, not as a party yes-man, even if the party were in trouble. November 1st, 1818. I don't doubt that the party of which the present government are the head will give me credit for being sincerely attached to them and to their interests. But I hope that in case any circumstance should occur to remove them from power, they will allow me to consider myself at liberty to take any line I may at the time think proper. 
The experience which I have acquired during my long service abroad has convinced me that a factious opposition to the government is highly injurious to the interests of the country, and, thinking as I do now, I could not become a party to such an opposition, and I wish that this may be clearly understood by those persons with whom I am now about to engage as a colleague in government. I can easily conceive that this feeling of mine and the opinion of some renders me less eligible as a colleague, and I beg that, if this should be the case, the offer you have so kindly made to me may be considered as not made. I can only assure you that you will ever find me equally disposed, as you have always found me, to render you every service and assistance in my power. Within a week, Liverpool was telling Wellington that he understood and accepted the condition for Wellington's return. After all, Liverpool could hardly afford to lose the nation's one great hero. Fife House, the 9th of November. I should certainly not think of proposing any person to become a member of the government upon any condition or understanding that he was necessarily to adopt the course of conduct which the party of which the government was composed might be inclined to pursue in the event of their being removed from office. But, strongly as I should be impressed with this sentiment with respect to any other individual, I feel it more peculiarly in your case, as it is impossible not to be sensible that there are many special circumstances in your situation which render it of the utmost importance that you should be at full liberty to adopt the line of conduct which you may at the time judge most proper and advisable, with a view to the country and to yourself. And so Wellington joined Liverpool's cabinet, with the simple ambition of maintaining a political system united in preserving the order of things. But not everyone went along with this view. For example, in this year, 1820, the threat of insurrection was considered very real. It doesn't matter if we, in the light of what we now know, believe Liverpool's government to have imagined revolutionary demons. It's what the people at the time believed that's important. In the year Wellington joined the cabinet, the infamous Peterloo Massacre happened. Eleven dead, cut down by hussars sent in by the Manchester magistrates to arrest a speaker at a rally of 60,000 or so on St Peter's Field. But it didn't take 60,000 to plot against the government. In the following year, 20 radicals, led by a middle-aged man called Arthur Thistlewood, met in a hayloft in Cato Street in Marylebone. Their plan, or so it was said, was to assassinate the cabinet and take over government. It came to nothing. They were arrested, and five of them, including Thistlewood, were hanged. The immediate result was the parliamentary statutes known as the Six Acts, which, among other things, banned gatherings of more than 50 people at a time. A heavy stamp duty was imposed on newspapers, the idea being that the radicals wouldn't be able to afford to print their own. These acts weren't much more than political gestures, intended in theory to strengthen the authority of the magistrates. Nevertheless, confidence in government's ability to cope with civil disorder appears to have been restored, although radicalism may not actually have been as threatening as was supposed. But again we have to remember that this was a society which didn't have an organised police force. Much information came from paid spies, a lucrative occupation. Here's a bill for spying services sent to the Home Office from the Bolton Magistrate. Account. Mr C and his agents, £71. 
Mr. W and his agents. One hundred and twenty-two pounds, eleven shillings and threepence. L.F. and his agent B. Thirty-four pounds, seventeen shillings. Postage and various expenses, six pounds, one shilling. Total, two hundred and thirty-four pounds, nine shillings and threepence. At these rates, spies were on to a good thing. So a lot of the intelligence about radicals might have been spiced to keep their paymasters happy. But if the nation had been distracted by rumours of revolution and the ghastly deeds of Peterloo and Cato Street, they were now to be amused in quite another way, by the coronation of their new monarch and the adulterous affairs of his queen, Caroline of Brunswick. Princes of Wales have a long tradition of causing their parents heartache. And for the Hanoverians, this was especially so. Every Hanoverian Prince of Wales was troublesome. George I loathed his son, who became George II. George II's son loathed him and set up a rival court. When he in turn became George III, his son sided with the Whig opposition and took up with a Catholic woman. This George IV's successor, his younger brother William IV, had ten children by an actress. The last of the Hanoverians, Victoria, had her own well-documented concerns at the behaviour of her Prince of Wales. We're concerned now with the story of the Prince of Wales who became George IV. To get the full tale, we have to go back from 1821 to the 1780s. George, Prince of Wales, as he then was, was 22. Like his father and grandfather before him, he was becoming increasingly alienated from the court, which was, by all accounts, a dreary place. The rules of court etiquette were simple. No one spoke unless the king's...